This message was presented at the GYC 2016 conference, When All Has Been Heard, in Houston, Texas. For other resources like this, visit us online at www.gycweb.org. All right, welcome. And as, as people are coming in, you're welcome to still, you know, there's still some seats closer to the front. You're welcome to move on up. There's a few in the back too, but we probably have more up here actually. Just before we begin, just to let you know, I have made one change to the schedule for any of you who are thinking of coming back. It's actually two of the messages we're going to change. I thought um, because of a change I made, it would work better, and I didn't realize the last message would be on Sabbath. So I switched two of them around. I put it on the screen here. Our first message is thinking skeptics and ignorant Christians. The second message would have been, did Darwin murder God? But now I've switched that to on Sabbath, and I've switched the one that would have been the next message at 1030, which is going to now be, is evolution a detriment to health and science? Some very powerful information. You probably never heard anything about uh, evolution from this standpoint that we're going to look at in the next message, so that'll be there. Okay, we have a quick announcement. Um, they are scanning each person that's in the room just to see how many are here. And so if you weren't scanned on the way in, if you could please go out that door so that he could scan you on the way out. They just want to you know. Don't have, you don't have to do it now, but afterward, right? Right. On, on your way out, make sure if you go out, you go out that door because he's in the back. The gentleman that's scanning people right now, he has his back to us. So he'll scan you at the end, and then, uh, then they'll know... Yeah, how many people were in the room? That will help them out because probably for future subjects, they'll want to know how many people need to come, you know, how many people come to a given subject. So you'd, you'd help us out. You'd help GYC out with that. So once again, for those of you who didn't hear, we've switched the next message, which is going to be as evolution a detriment to health and science with the last message, uh, which will now be to Darwin murder God will be Saturday afternoon. So that, that's the only switch we're making. Uh, but let's begin with our first message. But before we begin, I ask that you'd bow your heads with me for a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity to study. May your Holy Spirit guide us. In the name of Jesus, amen. You know, when it comes to science and the Bible, actually, before we even begin, let me just tell you quickly who I am. My name is Chad Cruiser. I was born in Grand Rapids, Michigan. And I have been traveling around for the last 15 years. We put on various different seminars. And I make a living as a documentary filmmaker. So I go around to archaeologists, historians, theologians, scholars, health professionals, and make documentaries about history, archaeology, the Bible, and also science. And so our newest one, I'll, I'll share with you some more of those different things as we go forward. I am not a scientist, by the way. I'm just a documentary filmmaker. So that's how I make a living. And, uh, but we all should be able to be thinking people and have a reasonable answer for what we believe. So you don't have to be a scientist per se to think about these things. But once again, I'm not a scientist, but I am fascinated with science. So I regularly read books about science. And so it's just something that interests me and that we produce documentaries about various subjects. But when we, when we think about the idea of science and faith, we typically think of articles like what we see here. This is an interesting thing we see in the Washington Post. Faith 
versus what? Fact. As if faith is against facts, right? Meaning faith could not really be true. So faith versus fact, why religion and science are mutually incompatible. Meaning the idea in much of mainstream media today is that faith cannot be compatible with science. That these two things are against each other. They are potentially polar opposites. And so is this the reality? And I, I hope to show you that this is not the case. And actually, a faith in what is actually true should enhance our view of science and actually give us a better life as a result of it. And I'm going to share with you in the next message that creationists, true creationists, following science from the Bible, they're the longest living people in the world. Creationists. Evolution has not created the longest living people in the world. Very interesting to think about, and that is scientific. I mean, what a thought there. And so, let's go forward. Let's start with some definitions quickly. The word atheist, an atheist is a theist is one who believes, and we'll look at that in just a moment, but an atheist is one who believes that there is no God. They are convinced there is no God. That's, that's what an atheist is. And when you think of a deist, a deist is someone who believes that there is a God, but it is a God who is detached from humanity. Basically, the deist believes there is a creator God who set in motion all the scientific workings in nature. He allows them to begin, but then what does he do? He just lets them kind of work out them work out themselves, meaning that he doesn't really interact with humanity. That's what a deist is. But we go on to a theist. A theist is one who actually does believe in God and generally believes that God has in some way communicated with humanity, delivering a message, and that God is a personal God. I want to tell you that I am a theist. I do believe that God actually has communicated with humanity, and I'm going to give you some evidence for that also. But there's another kind of faith, another belief system, and by the way, an atheist is a faith system, and I'm going to show you that further as we go on with these messages, but there's another one that you may never have heard of. It is called a fideist or fideism. Now, what is fideism? Fideism is a religious understanding And these would probably typically be someone from a Christian perspective who has a very particular understanding about the Bible and about faith. I am not someone who is a fideist. Now, these people believe that having evidence for what you believe would go against faith. That faith should be believing by blind faith, meaning a fideist, in essence, might, might think this, that if evolutionists had greater and greater arguments against the Bible, that is wonderful because that can help us to have even more faith because we'll just believe blindly in what something says like a religious book. That's a fideist. Now, I do not believe that. I believe that God has actually given us evidence in scripture and in science and that having evidence does not lower faith but it can actually enhance faith and by the way that is what faith is you may know that hebrews chapter 11 verse 1 says that what it says something very interesting about faith 
It says that faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. So the Bible actually says faith can have evidence for something you've never seen. I'm going to go into detail on that when we look at Did Darwin Murder God? Very powerful presentation. That's the uh, one Sabbath afternoon. So we're going to look at that Saturday afternoon. So do we have evidence? Now we're going to talk about that here in this first presentation. This is very interesting. You know, in ancient history, in Greece... You had lawyers, you had men of the law who would use a word, they had, some of you have heard this word, they would use this word, it's a Greek word, for their defense in court. Meaning if they were in a court process and they were trying to either defend their cause, they would want to have a defense and the word they would use for that defense in Greek was apologia. Apologia. Now what does this mean? Now, this is where we get the word in our modern English language, which, by the way, English is the largest language in the world, incidentally, because we adopt words from all other, not all, but many other languages. So it's a continually growing language. That's why it has more words than any other language. But in the English language, we have a word called apologetics. Apologetics. Now, that might sound like you're apologizing to people. But that's not what it meant in the original Greek. The, uh, the apologia was a defense for something you supposedly had evidence for. And in Christianity, or in religion, we have a, a study, a kind of study called apologetics. That's studying to have an answer for the belief system that you have. Do you actually have good, sound evidence for what you believe? And we call that apologetics. And we get that, obviously, from the ancient Greeks. And we get it from that we talk about in Christianity from 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 16, which says, but sanctify, that means to make holy, but sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and be ready always to give an answer. That's apologia. To give an answer to every man that asks you a reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. Some of the new translations, like the ESV, says, it, said, it says, in your hearts re- regard Christ as the Lord is holy, always being prepared to make a defense. That is apologia, making a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and what? And respect. Now, when we're defending the faith, it it's interesting that when he talks about defending the faith, he, he clarifies right there in the context that if you're going to defend the faith, you should do it with gentleness and respect. Not with anger and yelling, right? Shouting and, you know, you know, putting somebody down. But we should, if we're going to share the faith, hold up the faith, we should be doing it with gentleness, with respect, with kindness to those that we are speaking to. And so, thinking about this, the Bible says, you, you probably, many of you have heard these words by Jesus in John chapter 17, verse 17, sanctify them, once again, make them holy, through your truth, your word is what? Truth. Your word is truth. But is it really truth? Now, if it's really truth, then it should have something to be able to buttress it, to be able to hold it up. It should be able to show and reveal by evidence that it is actually true. Jesus says that it's true, and I believe that it is. But the question is why? Do we have good evidence for that? Well, some of you may have heard this argument. Now, I'm going to tell you very quickly. 
this first message, the purpose of this first message is to establish that there are lines of evidence. And we're not, I mean, we're going to just touch on a very few of them in this message. There are lines of reasoning that can help us to understand that the Bible can be trusted. That the Bible can be trusted. And so I'm going to talk about some science in this message, but in any form of science, the word science coming from the idea of knowledge. In any form of knowledge, one form of science needs different evidence than another form of science. Meaning, biology needs different evidence to prove certain biological things to be true than geology would need, right? Meaning, geology would have different things. Now, they can both be tested, they could both be verified generally, but there's different forms of evidence. So, too, in the knowledge of religion, God gives us different forms of evidence that may be a little different than maybe testing how much, uh, you know, iron is in a certain piece of, of metal, right? Uh, so, it, you, you, there's different forms of evidence, and we're going to look at some of the forms of evidence, both scientific and more spiritual and historical, in this message. Then, as we progress through each message, we're going to be looking at more of the science, breaking down various aspects of both creation and evolution. But let's look at this. Now, how many of you have ever played the telephone game? Anybody ever played the telephone game? Okay. And maybe most of you have raised your hand, but some of you who haven't, maybe it's because you just don't know what I'm talking about. Uh, it works like this. If I were to take a little sentence, and I would whisper it into my friend here, Wardell, into his ear, and then he would whisper it into Gabriel next to him, and, and we would begin to go around the room, and they would whisper the message. Let's say I said, the weather here in Houston is beautiful today. And then Wardell says it to the next guy, and the next guy, and you whisper it into the ear of the next person, and it, and it snakes its way around the room, finally comes up to the young man here in the front, and then I ask him, hey, what, what did I say to Wardell? You tell us what you heard from the person with you. And he says to me something like this, purple bunnies look nice in the sun. Is that how, is that how the game works, yes or no? So how many of you played that? Is that how it normally works out for you? It always works out that way. Almost always, I should say, right? Maybe one or two times it's actually worked out where someone got the message across. But virtually always, it turns out crazy by the end. And you may have heard this argument that believing in the Bible is irrational. It doesn't make sense. It, it wouldn't stand to reason why. Because it's clearly like the telephone game. There was no hard drive that kept things from you know, changing through the, the millennia that we've had the Word of God. So the idea that it has stayed firm for the last two to three plus thousand years is just not rational. This is what many of the skeptics would say. Just so you know, there's several seats closer up front for anybody who would like to come up front. You probably don't want to come up front, but you're welcome to anyway. You're welcome to come up. And so, they say, you know, believing in the Bible is like the telephone game. It's, it clearly would have been changed over the millennia. Well, that's a good question. Is that the case? Well, I won't go into all the details on to why we know that it has not changed virtually at all over the millennia, uh, but I will give one simple thing that you may have heard of, and it is evidence. It's so interesting because as skepticism was creeping into Christianity, whether it's uh, from secularists, whether it's from people of the Islamic faith, 
People in Islam are very staunch, many of them, about putting down the Bible and saying that it cannot be trusted, that it has been changed over the centuries, that the Quran, by the way, has not changed at all, but the Bible has changed significantly, which, by the way, they have ancient manuscripts from the Quran that have similar issues to the Bible, by the way, uh, various different, you know, dissimilarities. But by the way, back to our, regardless, back to, back to our point here. So do we have evidence that the Bible can still be trusted today just as it was for the last several thousand years? Now you may have heard of the story of in the year 1947, 1947-48, the story actually there's kind of dispute about the years, but there was a young actually Muslim boy, and I, this is kind of ironic that it was a young Muslim, uh, his name was Muhammad Ed Deeb. And this young boy was a goat herder in the area of Qumran. And so he's herding his goats and there's only, only so many things to do while you're herding goats. And so he walks by a cave, he picks up a rock and he throws it into the rock, you know. And as he throws it in there, what does he hear? He hears something shatter. And well, that interests him. I wonder what that was. So he goes into the cave and he finds some broken pottery. And within those pots were some scrolls, and so he took them with him, with him, and through a series of events, it was finally discovered by somebody who knew what these were, and as they looked into it, this began to be the discovery of what? The Dead Sea Scrolls, that's right. So this began to be the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls. Now what these were, were ancient manuscripts of the Bible... And the dates range a bit from somewhere between maybe like 250 before Christ to something like 50 before Christ, some of them just after maybe. And you had hundreds of scrolls and you had thousands of pieces. I mean, they, many of them had broken down. Some of them were very well preserved, like the great Isaiah scroll was preserved very, very well. And now we could test because these were over 2,000 years old. These were a thousand years older than our oldest manuscripts that we had extant at that time. So now we could see, is the Bible like the what? The telephone game, right? Is it just like the telephone game? Does it just change over time? And so as the scholars began to test it, what we found as we, as we could compare our modern text in, you know, the year 2016, almost 2017, has, are we reading something completely different than Jesus read when he was here? Reading from the book of Isaiah and Luke, in the book of Luke. Was he, was he reading from something totally different? Well, now as the, you know, the, these, we could call, you know, these linguists are looking at it, they found out, no, that the Bible has not been changed. We see here just a quotation about it from Jeff, um, Jeffrey Scheller and Is the Bible True?, he says, the scrolls have been shown that our traditional Bible has been amazingly accurately preserved for over 2,000 years. Meaning the, the Bible is virtually unchanged. There, yes, there were some discrepancies like spelling differences. And yes, there were a few words here and there that would mean the same thing as the other word, you know, something that is synonymous. Very few discrepancies. But one thing that had not changed through the millennia is the message. The message was unchanged. The same thing was said 2,000 years ago as it is said today. And by the way, like I said, uh, Islam has the very same issue, even though most, is, most people within Islam do not know that. That they found what they actually believe is an older manuscript of the Quran in 
England of all places, and there are discrepancies. We have the very same thing. But the message hasn't changed. The message has not changed. What's interesting is there was a man by the name of Sir William Mitchell Ramsey. This man studied in the, the he was studying, you know, to looking at re religious ideas, and he was being educated in what we would, we would call today higher criticism. It was a German school of religious thinking, meaning that was the, the, the understanding, was the German ideas, which were a form of skepticism. And so as, as Sir William Mitchell Ramsey was studying these things, he became convinced that the Bible was not true. It could not really be trusted. That as a historical document, it was not verifiable, actually to the to the opposite, that it would be something that you couldn't trust, it just wasn't true and accurate when it would come to historical events or archaeological events. Well, interestingly enough, Sir William Mitchell Ramsey became an archaeologist, one of the most popular archaeologists of his day. And as he went to actually do some of the digging into the rock records himself, he came to the opposite conclusion of what he had been taught in school. There's a passage in the book of Proverbs that says, The one who states his case first seems right until the other comes and examines him. Isn't that an interesting idea? The one who states his case first seems right until the other comes and examines him. We're going to look at that text in almost every message I go through. Because this man was first taught that the Bible could not be trusted, and the one who states his case first seems right, until someone comes and examines it. And so as he examined it through the actual first-hand rock records, he came to the opposite conclusion. And, and one of the things he looked at specifically was Luke, because Luke is very meticulous at describing where events took place, what happened there, where places were. And looking back on this, Sir William Mitchell Ramsey, he ended up saying, Luke is a historian of the first rank. Not merely are his statements of fact trustworthy, this author should be placed along with the very greatest of what? You see, he heard one side of the story in school, and it destroyed his faith until he tested it. Many people lose their faith and never end up looking into it for themselves. And that could be a danger for you. I'll tell you, if you go off to a university whether it's one of our schools or whether it's a public school, and you have professors teaching evolution. And I have no problem teaching evolution and teaching why it's not true. I think we should do that. We should teach this is what is taught in evolution, and these are evidences that we think are persuasive that it is not true. I have no problem with that. But many times people teach it because they themselves have never looked at the other side of the story. The one who states this case first seems right. They went to school. They watched Discovery Channel. They watched History Channel. They heard one side of the story. But when they begin to look for themselves and they see, oh, there's another side that I never heard, which is much more logical, much more uh, actually fits better with the science, that even many of the top scientists acknowledge, yeah, 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 we know the greatest proofs in the textbooks are not true. I'll show you that when we go forward in the lies in the textbooks. They know it's not true, yet it stays in the textbook decade after decade. Sometimes uh, at least one of the evidences for 90 years is still in there. And yet scientists acknowledge, top scientists say, yeah, we've known this stuff is just not true. Not even creationists, just secular scientists. So we're going to go into that. I don't want to... So William Mitchell Ramsey, as he studied it himself. Now here's the thing. See, and, and, and the, the reason why I'm sharing this kind of an apologetic to begin with. The first message is kind of apologetics. The rest is 
scientific. But here's the thing. Why would we believe in the biblical story if there is no good evidence, right? But the Bible said that we should be ready to give an answer. The newer translations say be ready to give a defense, an apologia for what we believe. But always with gentleness and respect, right? Always with gentleness and respect. So, but someone might say, okay, well, that's all nice. Yeah, the Bible has some maybe historically accurate, you know, descriptions of places and archaeology may, may buttress what the Word of God says. But how do we even know about Jesus? How, would, how do we even know he existed? And maybe, maybe the disciples just kind of made up the whole story. We're going to talk about that. I want you to think about this. What if the Bible had been totally taken away? What if in the first century they were successful at crushing out the message of the gospel through the Bible? I'm going to share with you quickly that we could have virtually the main message of the Bible even if we had no Bible. You say, what? What if we look at ancient historians that lived during Jesus' day or right after Jesus' day and looked at what ancient Roman historians said about Jesus? We could get the, the, the basic message of the New Testament without the Bible. Now, we have the Bible, and praise the Lord, we do. God preserved it so that we could grow, we could be edified, we could strengthen our faith. But notice, we look at some of the ancient historians, Tacitus, who was known as the greatest historian of ancient Rome, or one of the greatest historians of ancient Rome. Not a believer in Christ, by the way. This man wasn't there as an apologist for Scripture. He was, a, he was not a believer. But notice what he said. He said, Christus, or Christ, from whom the name had its origin suffered the extreme penalty during the reign of Tiberius at the hands of one of our procurators, Pontius Pilatus. Now, does that show some of the biblical story right there, yes or no? Yes. Notice, he knew that it was during the reign of Tiberius. He tells us that it was during the time of Pontius Pilatus, Pontius Pilate. And he also tells us it was Christ, and he suffered the extreme penalty, which what would the extreme penalty have been? Death of the cross. That was the worst punishment the Romans could inflict on, inflict on you. Let's go forward. Here's Pliny, who lived from AD 23. This guy lived during the days of Jesus to AD 79. The whole of their guilt or their error was that they were in the habit of meeting on a certain fixed day before it was light when they sang in alternate verses a hymn to who? Christ as to a what? So notice, this guy who lived during Jesus' day said they were worshiping Jesus as a what? As a God. So the idea that the divinity of Christ came somewhere maybe in the 3rd century, 4th century, that's not true. Even secular historians notice, man, these people are worshiping this guy like a God, right? And so it says they were, you know, singing hymns as to a God and bound themselves by a solemn oath not to do any wicked deeds but never commit any fraud, theft, or adultery. So we see these were very moral people. They were worshiping Jesus. They would sing about him. They would gather together. They were, they were living an upstanding life. We see Lucian, another ancient historian. The Christians, you know, worship a man to this day. We see the same thing. The distinguished personage who introduced their novel rites and was crucified on that account. So we know he was crucified in ancient historical documents. From the moment they are converted and deny the gods of Greece, so they don't follow false gods, and they worship the crucified sage, so they worship him and live after his laws. All this they take quite on faith, with the result that they despise all worldly goods alike, regarding them merely as common property. What does the book of Acts say 
took place with the early apostles and the early church. That all things were in common. Do you see, we get the story, and I'm only going to show you four quick quotes. We could go into quote after quote of ancient historians outside of the Bible who are antithetical to Scripture, yet tell us that the story of the Bible actually at least did happen, at least the New Testament experience of Jesus and the apostles. So we have no question Jesus existed. How do we know Alexander the Great lived? How, how do you think? Historians, right? We trust the historians. These people are historians, and they corroborate what the New Testament tells us. We go on. So I guess we'll just go, maybe that was three, maybe it was four. But here's some points we can find from extra-biblical or non-biblical ancient historical uh, documents or historians. Number one, we find that Jesus was put on trial by his enemies for being a miracle worker who had led the people of Israel astray. That's what the Talmud says. So number two, Jesus was crucified during the reign of Emperor Tiberius. Jesus was put on death by the Roman procurator Pontius Pilate. And you can notice that we have texts here to back up from the Bible what the historians were saying outside of the Bible. Number four, Jesus was killed on the night before Passover, the Talmud says. Number five, Jesus' death occurred before the destruction of the temple in 70 you know, A.D., and after his death, the superstition about Christ broke out originally in Judea, but it made its way to Rome as the book of Acts records. I mean, look at how clear the message is outside of the Bible. And number seven, Jesus was reported to be alive three days after his death by his followers, Josephus tells us in the Arabic text. Number eight, uh, Christianity was so controversial that Emperor Claudius kicked all the Jews out of Rome. The Jews in Rome were literally riding over the person of Christus. They were riding about Jesus. Uh, number nine, despite rampant persecution and torture, Jesus was worshipped as God by his followers after his death. We see that from Pliny and Lucian. Uh, Jesus was thought to be the king of the Jews. The, whoops, got the leaven in the wrong place. But the Christian faith was considered a contagious moment, uh, movement by the enemies of Christianity. And number 12, Christianity infiltrated all ages, social classes, and both genders. It was an immense group of people, not just a small class or subculture. So we could have the basic story of the gospel and the book of Acts, the four gospels and the book of Acts, from secular writers. So the idea that we only get this from some religious book, we can get the story outside of the Bible. We have evidence that it is at least historically accurate, at least the story of this Messiah who died uh, the Bible says, for the sins of the world. Actually, there's some more. Number 13, James was the br Jesus' brother, and he was martyred for his faith in, in Christ. The Christian message had reached the Mediterranean by 52 uh, AD, and non-Christians were debating over the supernatural events surrounding the death of Christ. And Christians took their name from their leader, Christ. And Christians met frequently, shared all things in common, and believed that they would live after they died, and they worshipped their crucified leader. This is powerful. The, the main points of the Bible are found outside of the Bible by ancient historians. Now, one of the evidences that we have that the Bible is true is ancient historical documents. There are few people in all of history that have, have as much corroborating evidence as Jesus Christ. Actually, anciently, I don't think there's any other person who has as much evidence about them as Jesus Christ. And so we have great evidence for these things. But just because there was a guy who lived 2,000 years ago and died on a cross doesn't mean he was the savior of the world. 
right? What evidence do we have that Jesus was who he said he was? I'm going to show you a clip. As I said, I'm a documentary filmmaker. This is a clip I'm going to show you from our new, our, it's actually one of our oldest documentaries called The Most Incredible Prophecy. And this is going to be talking about the evidence of prophecy mixed with mathematical probability. So hopefully you'll be able to hear it. I'll try to turn it up and we'll see if we can get this working here. When it comes to the prophecies of Jesus, one of the most takes place when you take those prophecies of Jesus and you work them out mathematically. Now, there has been a mathematician who's done that. Peter Stoner, famous mathematician, went in, looked at how many prophecies there were, 300 prophecies. And then as he broke down those prophecies, he said, let me just take eight of them and figure out what's the likelihood of eight of these prophecies being fulfilled in one person's life. So Professor Stoner gives us an illustration. It helps us to understand the nature of probability. So let's just say that one in every 10 men that you meet has a bald head. And one in every 100 men that you meet happen to have a missing finger. You want to find out how many men are there that I'm going to bump into that actually have a missing finger and a bald head. So what you do is you multiply the first two figures and then you have your answer. One in every 1,000 men that you meet are going to actually have a missing finger and a bald head. Let me go back, sorry. That's not the whole thing. When it comes to the prophecies of Jesus, one of the most remarkable things is what takes place when you take those prophecies of Jesus and you work them out mathematically. Now, there has been a mathematician who's done that. Peter Stoner, famous mathematician, went in, looked at how many prophecies there were, 300 prophecies. And then as he broke down those prophecies, he said, let me just take eight of them and figure out what's the likelihood of eight of these prophecies being fulfilled in one person's life. So Professor Stoner gives us an illustration. It helps us to understand the nature of probability. So let's just say that one in every 10 men that you meet has a bald head. And one in every 100 men that you meet happen to have a missing finger. You want to find out how many men are there that I'm going to bump into that actually have a missing finger and a bald head. So what you do is you multiply the first two figures and then you have your answer. One in every 1,000 men that you meet are going to actually have a missing finger and a bald head. Peter Stoner presented his class with a challenge. The class was to look at the Bible and try to find all the prophecies regarding the coming of Christ to see what was the probability that one man could come out of all the men that existed in the, in the history of the world and it fulfill exactly every single prophecy. One of the prophecies that Peter W. Stoner mentions is Zechariah 9.9, which reads, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation as he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The question is, is how many people in Earth's history have been kings and of those individuals how many have ridden on a donkey into Jerusalem well I don't know neither did the class so they decided to assign an absurdly high number they decided one out of every 100 men who ever lived rode into Jerusalem as a king on a donkey of all things I mean one in a hundred 
This is obviously absurdly high, but that's the point. Stoner effectively buffered his calculations and thus his conclusions against objections that he had biased his calculations to favor Jesus' identification as the Messiah. Another prophecy that Professor Stoner looked at was Micah chapter 5 and verse 2. In Micah 5 verse 2 there's an incredible prophecy that is given hundreds of years before the birth of Christ pinpointing exactly the place where Jesus would be born. It states, But you, Bethlehem Ephratah, though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me the one to be ruler in Israel. What's amazing is the fact that there are two Bethlehems, two cities called Bethlehem in Israel, one in the northern portion of the kingdom, one in the south. Uh, this specifies which Bethlehem? This specifies Bethlehem Ephratah, which is Bethlehem in Judah. So the prophecy is very precise. But in addition to that, when you think about Mary and Joseph, uh, Mary finds out that she's pregnant. She's in Nazareth. And yet suddenly this decree comes out. This census is being proclaimed by the Romans. And they're told that they have to go back to the birthplace of the husband. And so Joseph makes his way to Bethlehem in Ephrata. They have to take their family back to Bethlehem. Joseph has to be taxed according to Roman law. Jesus is born in Bethlehem. The prophecy fulfilled right to the very, very place where Micah, hundreds of years earlier, predicted it to, be, to happen was just remarkable when you think about all the circumstances involved. So Stoner and his students, they decided that they wanted to figure out, in the light of the world's population, how many people have actually been born in the city of Bethlehem. One out of every 280,000 people was a very conservative estimate that they made, that they found mathematically, of how many people have actually been born in Bethlehem. Now another prophecy they looked at is found in the 53rd chapter of the book of Isaiah. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. Stoner brings this out, that Jesus was a just man, condemned to die, and he said not a word, not one word in his defense. Now how many have done that? Well, his class didn't know. Of course not. How could you know? So here again, they assigned a conservatively high number, for the purposes of their calculations, they said, okay, how about one in every thousand men who ever lived were both wrongly accused of a crime and during their trial chose to speak no word in their defense? And then as he broke down those prophecies, he said, let me just take eight of them and figure out what's the likelihood of eight of these prophecies being fulfilled in one person's life. So just with those eight prophecies, he said the probability of one person fulfilling all eight was one in 10 to the power of 17. That's like taking silver dollars all over Texas. They covered the entire state. And on one of those coins, somewhere in the state, you have a particular coin marked with a black X. And he put it randomly, stir it up somehow, and randomly put it somewhere in the state of Texas, covered two feet deep with these silver dollars. And you send a blind man in, 
the probability that he would just wander the state of Texas, reach down on his first try, and come up with this marked silver dollar is the probability that one man could fulfill all eight of these prophecies about Jesus. Now, not only that, but it actually, he went further and he said, all right, let me see if I take 48 of these. All right, I'm going to stop it there. Okay. Now, a little too loud. All right. So thinking about that, we could go on and on. This is a, I mean, it's, it's a longer documentary. You're just seeing a few minutes of it there. But prophecy is very powerful. They go on to talk about, that was only eight prophecies. There were 300. They go on to show that it is infinitely impossible. Infinitely impossible, meaning the chances that he could fulfill 300, actually not 300, 48 of the prophecies, it ends up being like if you had millions of times all the atoms in the entire universe. So not just Texas covered with silver dollars, but the entire universe, multiple universes. Uh, the chances that someone would go pick the one atom in all of the universes that don't exist would be the chance that Jesus could fulfill just 48 of the prophecies. So the point is, very powerful. And so that's, we, we make documentaries for the specific purpose of reaching the people who are not, of, not believers and specifically just people in general. So not only do we hit subjects like this, but we also hit subjects like death, uh, what happens after death, we talk about. Even the Sabbath, very interesting things. Very, um, I'll just let you know, we're at this GYC, we're giving a better deal on them than we've ever given before. So if you're interested, we're at Anchor Point Films booth, powerful things to share with your non-believing friends and, and to but your, buttress or help your own faith. So let's go forward. But in John chapter 14, verse 29, Jesus told us, now I've told you before it come to pass that when it is come to pass, you might believe. Science has evidences for its various subjects. God gives evidence for his divinity, for the reality of the fact that he is a God. And one of the evidences, he says, I'll tell you before it happens. If I can tell the future every time without fail, you will know that I am God. I'll tell you, I'm a Seventh-day Adventist today because uh, I was in college, got invited to a prophecy series. And when I saw the solid message of the Bible, the prophecies of Daniel chapter 2, and then various prophecies. I mean, it was, I believed in the Bible, but never had I seen it like this, that you can truly trust the Word of God. It changed my life. Prophecy is so very powerful. We've been given this. God says this. So, you know, another evidence of the truth is the evidence of the resurrection. You think, come on, people will laugh if you say there's evidence for the resurrection. But I believe there is actually powerful evidence. Think about this. Jesus was killed by the Romans on a Roman cross, put in a Roman tomb. That tomb was guarded, guarded by who? Roman soldiers. Now, there's basically, you know, his body was gone. Nobody really disputes the fact that his body disappeared. But if you think about it logically, there's only three options for what happened to the body. Number one, the Romans took it. Number two, the Jews took it. Or number three, the disciples took it. Now, if the Romans took it, and the disciples say, Ah, he's resurrected! Our Lord, he's come back to life! What would the Romans do? They'd grab his dead body that they had pulled out, they'd stick it in a wheelbarrow, and they'd run it down the street saying, Here's your dead Messiah. The guy didn't raise from the dead. Come on, this is, here's, here's the body. The second group, the Jews. What would happen with them? 
Now, the Jews, did they want Jesus to rise from the dead? No. So if, if they would have stolen his body and the disciples are running around saying, Jesus rose from the grave, same thing would have happened. They would have brought out the corpse of Jesus and said, here's your dead Messiah. The only other option is who did it? The disciples. Actually, there's two other options. The other option is that he rose from the dead, right? But the other one is that the, the disciples stole it away. But here's the thing. Let's say the disciples stole the body away and then lied to everyone saying that the Messiah, their Messiah, had risen from the dead. Yeah, think about it, right? What, so let's say you made this up. Now, let's say you were to make up a new religion. If you were to make up a new religion, wouldn't you want to be like the king of that religion? Like, wouldn't you want, you know, many wives or all kinds of money or whatever it is that interests you in this world? But these guys start a new religion where they're homeless, where they get persecuted, beaten, stoned, crucified, and yet they hold fast. Listen, if they knew that they had stolen the body and the whole thing was a lie, you think they'd all be willing to die for something they knew was a lie? Think about this. The reality is, is are, do people die for lies, religious lies, yes or no? All the time. People blowing themselves up repeatedly for a lie. True? But how many of them die for something they know is a lie? Do you think every single one of the disciples would have been willing to die for something they knew they had made up? Let's go tell the world they have to be humble and, and nice and, and give to the poor and, and we'll die for it. Isn't that a great... Who would do that? Almost nobody. Now, one of them or two of them might have been willing to die, but every single one of them, the only one that didn't die for, you know, for their faith was who? John, but he was thrown in a pot of boiling oil. He was persecuted. Yes, he lived to a ripe old age, but the fact is, I mean, he was persecuted for it. So every one of them was willing to die for Jesus. Why? Why do you think they were willing to die for him? Did they believe he rose from the dead the day after his resurrection? Two days after his resurrection. Three, finally, it wasn't until what? He came to them. They were like everybody else. They were skeptics. Genuine skeptics. But once they had the evidence... They were willing to die for their Savior. You understand? Listen, we have evidence, great evidence, even for the, the resurrection of our Savior. I'm going to share with you some evidence from chronobiology. This is powerful. This is uh, very, very powerful. So I'm going to share with you another video clip from uh, our, our newest documentary. Hope we can get this to work and not be too loud. The World Health Organization believes that we are... I'm going to skip that one. We'll go to the next. And so we need that nightly rest to be able to um, allow our brain to function optimally. Every one of us is programmed with a body clock. That body clock still functions if we were to lock ourselves up in a cave for many days. In fact, researchers have done this. And they find that people, even when they're cut off from all time cues, no light and dark cues, no newspapers, no television, no wristwatches, no cell phones, these individuals still stay on a circadian rhythm. Circa meaning about, DN referring to a day. So it's about a 24-hour rhythm. It's best to take that rest until the next morning or a rest on the weekly cycle. But beyond the circadian rhythm, we also have weekly rhythms. They're called circa-septin rhythms. And we in humanity all march to a seven-day week. 
Every culture throughout the world that I'm aware of still adheres to a weekly cycle of seven days. And there's times when humanity has tried to change that. The French tried to make everything metric, including the week, and tried to change it into a 10-day week with 10 hours, 100 minutes in each hour, 100 seconds in each minute. And the mental institutions filled up because the decade, which is what they called the week, led to decadence and everything fell apart. The other amazing thing about what science has shown is that every living creature has a seven-day rhythm. And that's more than just humans. A lot of people think, well, humans march to a seven-day week because somehow it started early in civilization and we've just hung on to that. Uh, but why is it that flies have a seven-day rhythm? Why is it that algae have a seven-day rhythm and plants have a seven-day rhythm? Those things uh, can't read the Bible. The lunar month isn't divisible by seven. The year is not divisible by seven. There's nothing in the planets that we can find. And so the question is, why seven? It brings me back to that very ancient council in the Bible where God said that he had given this day of rest to his people. But I think that speaks to what the Bible has to say in regards to how we began, how life began. It was a common designer, a common creator that programmed in this seven-day rhythm. He called it a Sabbath, a day where we could come apart. And I think it's powerful evidence, actually, for a creator God. One of the interesting things about Seventh-day Adventists is that they keep the Sabbath holy from sundown Friday until sundown on Saturday. Sabbath keeping actually does have some significant mental health advantages. There's an improvement in IQ. Even though they don't study on Sabbath or go to school on Sabbath. So Circus Septum Rhythms is not just something from the culture, it's actually something biologically innate. There's benefit to a nightly rest but also benefit to a weekly rest. So these things are part of our physiology. What is so interesting to me as a physician, if we cooperate, if we collaborate with these rhythms, we do best. You know, you can't underestimate the remedy of what I call vitamin R, uh, which is rest. Uh, and if it were sold in bottles, it would be the most popular vitamin on the market. What a thought that God has put this within us. We had no evidence for this in history. You see, when Darwin was here, we knew almost nothing about science. And so he thought, I mean, life could come about from non-life. It's not real hard. Things aren't complex. What an understatement, right? The simplest cell is more complicated than what we can. It's more complicated than like a city today. A simple cell. And God is created within us the reality of a seven-day cycle, and even in nature, even in things, we don't know why. I mean, we can't look at the, you know, the, the moon or the, or the sun, and we, we can't figure it out, but yet it's there. And where do we have evidence for it? We have it where? In the Bible. God has given these things to us, that people who are Sabbath keepers actually have an higher IQ. I mean, God has made all of these things for our good. You see, we have evidences, and we're, we're, just, we're just scratching the surface here 
in this first message. That right there is from our newest documentary, Ancient Health. Very, very, it's, a, it's an hour and a half documentary. Very powerful information to share with someone who may not be, they may be, in, they may be new ager, and that, that's what they're interested in. Gives them the health message. Powerful stuff. Uh, both, you know, we have, you know, whether it's an atheist or whether it's, you know, Adventist, uh, you know, doctors or health professionals or, or non, non-Adventist health professionals. They're in this documentary. Uh, very powerful information. You can come check it out later at our booth at Anchor Point Films. But I'm going to close with just a couple quick points in this first message. That Dr. Anthony Abeni talks about a seven-day biological rhythm, a biorhythm in humans, in the human body. That's one of the recent discoveries of modern chronology. It manifests itself in, in the form of small variations in blood pressure and heartbeat, as well as a response to, the, in, to infection and even organ transplant. For example, the probability of rejection of certain organs is now known to peak at weekly intervals following an implant. Now, you say, well, yeah, but that's because we you know, keep a seven-day cycle. But as we've already seen, we're not unique in broadcasting this beat, this seven-day cycle. Even simple organisms down to bacteria and one-celled animals seem to share this with us. There is, uh, there is for example, a seven-day rhythm in the mermaid's wine glass. That's a species of algae. That's the picture on the left. A species of algae whose configuration resembles a champagne glass with a long stem and a large flowery globe at the end. This organism can be entrained to induce its rate of growth only when exposed to an alternating light-dark period of seven days no more, no less. Isn't that interesting? It's fascinating that we've been given this. Where does this come from? The Bible told us right in the beginning, thus the heavens and the earth were finished and all the host of them. And on the seventh day God ended his work which he had made and he rested on the seventh day from all his work which he had made. And God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it because that in it he had rested from all his work which God created and made. Isn't it interesting that we, not just Christianity in general, Seventh-day Adventists have been given a message that is corroborated by science, by our own guts. The fact that those who live this out by faith, the ones who had no scientific evidence for our health message, are now the longest living people in the world. Creationists. Evolution hasn't been able to produce the same effect. Very powerful. But I'm going to share with you more about that. But like I said, in the, in the upcoming messages, we're going to talk about uh, the next message is evolution a detriment to health and science. The next message after that, what about eight men? Then the fourth one today will be the age of the earth. And Friday, we only have one. There's textbook deceptions. If you go to school and you struggle running into these kinds of things, we're going to look at some of the greatest evidence for evolutionists and look at the evolutionists who tell us this stuff's not true. Evolutionists. You don't need some creationists to tell you. You don't even need me. We're just, I'm just here to read what they say. So you don't have to be a science. You can just share the same thing. So, and the final message, Sabbath afternoon, is did Darwin murder God? Once again, for anybody, if your friend's thinking of coming and they want to, that's not going to be next. They, what, did Darwin murder God was going to be the next message, but I switched it, I switched them around a little bit. So, before we begin, or before we close, let's close with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, I thank you that you give us evidence If we want to hang our doubts, there's always going to be enough hooks to hang them on. But if we're open to looking for evidence, you've given us evidence that is beyond anything we could think or ask. Whether it's mathematical probability, whether it's the chronobiology or the biology of our time, 
meaning the fact that we, are, that, we, that we fit right along with the biblical time period, that you've made us with this seven-day biorhythm. Whether it's history corroborating the evidence of Scripture, whether it is archaeological sites and discoveries, you have given us enough evidence if we're willing to look for it. Lord, my prayer is that none of these young people, or maybe even older for that matter, that none of them would be lost as they go to school or watch television or go about life because they hear arguments against the truth and they never take the time to find the answers to those arguments because they're out there. And I know from personal experience and what a travesty to lose young people And I think of even sometimes maybe professors or even our own professors, sometimes who've never looked for the other side of the story. And yet the things are taught sometimes even within our own institutions. Lord, my prayer is that we would be willing to look for the evidence. There's nothing wrong with seeing the other side. Hey, yes, we're going to be taught evolution. We're going to hear about it on television. But is there an answer? Father, I pray that we would be open to the truth. Jesus said, your word is truth. And I pray that we would live by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. That we would fulfill the three angels' messages. We've been given this message of creation, the creator. And may we stand firm with gentleness and respect. In Jesus' name. This message was presented at the GYC 2016 conference when all has been heard in Houston, Texas. GYC, a supporting ministry of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, seeks to inspire young people to be Bible-based, Christ-centered, and soul-winning Christians. For other resources like this, visit us online at www.gycweb.org.